like to turn your attention this morning back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Begin reading this morning in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. 1 Samuel 16 verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Let our Lord now command thy servants, excuse me, and behold, Saul's servants said unto him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. Let our Lord now command thy servants which are before thee to seek out a man who is cunning, a cunning player on a harp. And it shall come to pass when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, that he shall play with his hand, and thou shalt be well. And Saul said unto his servants, Provide me now a man that can play well, and bring him to me. Then answered one of the servants, and said, Behold, I have seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, that is cunning in playing, and a mighty valiant man, and a man of war, and prudent in matters, and a comely person, and the Lord is with him. Wherefore Saul sent messengers unto Jesse, and said, Send me David, thy son, which is with the sheep. And Jesse took an ass laden with bread and a bottle of wine and a kid and sent them by David his son unto Saul. And David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David, I pray thee, stand before me, for he hath found favor in my sight. And it came to pass, when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took a harp and played with his hand, so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. As we looked last week, we find that God has said to Saul that God would choose out a king, and he would be a man after God's own heart. We see where Samuel went down to the house of Jesse, who had eight sons, and we find that the eighth son, David, who at that time was probably around 10 to 12 years of age, was anointed by uh, Samuel to be the king over Israel. We find, though, that David is still a very humble young individual. He goes back to tending to his father's sheep. But as we see in the first verse we read today, it says, From that day the Spirit of the Lord came upon David, and from that day forward. Now, that doesn't mean that David never experienced the Spirit of God prior to this day. It just means that God's Spirit was in a, a, on him in an abiding way in the sense that his protection was there, his counsel, his guidance, his instruction, his teaching, and so forth. But interestingly, as we see that, it says in the very next verse, but the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So the Spirit comes to David, but it departs from Saul. So it's this spirit of protection, this spirit of hedging one in. It's much like the spirit of God that was around Job when Job was hedged in by God and Satan was unable to touch him. Well, if we're going to find that there's going to be no evil that can touch David. In fact, David would say in the Psalms, he says, because uh, I have set the Lord at my right hand, I shall not be moved. In other words, I'm where I'm supposed to be. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And because of that, I will not be moved. Now, we'll find also in the Psalms where the wicked would say, because they were high in their own thoughts, we'll never be moved. And the Bible says that God would shake them out of their place. But David wasn't saying that in a boastful way. He was just simply making the statement, because the Lord is at my right hand, I'm where I'm supposed to be. God is the foundation of my life, and so I shall not be shaken. And so the enemies of David would not find success against him. 
In fact, David's greatest trouble would come from David's own doing. Uh, the biggest trouble that ever came in David's life was his sin with Bathsheba, and that was of David's own making. Uh, in fact, the, the Lord told David that you could have asked of me anything, and I would have given it to you. So we find that his greatest trouble didn't come from his enemies, but came from himself, which is often the case for you and I, is it not? That some of our greatest troubles in life didn't come from the enemies from without, but came from our own carnal nature, and not uh, mortifying the deeds of the flesh. And soon we found ourselves in very serious trouble. So the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Let me say this very quickly about the word evil here. The word evil is not used here in the same sense that we often use it. We often only apply evil to the wickedness. But evil, when we find it, especially in reference to the Lord, it does not mean wickedness or sinfulness. It means affliction. It means torment. It can mean a testing, a temptation, or a trial. Uh, and obviously, that's what it means here in this place. The Lord sends a spirit to Saul that afflicts him. It's an afflicting spirit. It's not an evil in the sense, wicked spirit, in the sense a sinful spirit, but one that would afflict him. And he deserved it. God was not capricious about this. God had commanded him to be faithful. God had instructed him in exactly what he was supposed to do. And we find that Saul time and time again would not live up to what God commanded. And so here finally the Lord departs from him. And that tells me I need to be careful how I walk. Because the Lord could likewise depart from me. And the spirit of God that abides with me might depart. And instead an evil spirit come and afflict me. And I certainly want to walk in such a way that I would walk with the Lord. Micah 6 verse 8 says, He has showed to you, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. So you and I, we have the responsibility to walk humbly with the Lord. And to walk with the Lord, we must walk humbly, because the Bible says God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace to the humble. So you're not going to walk with the Lord if you are a proud individual. Uh, you're not going to walk with the Lord, or the Lord will not walk with you, if you're going to be a haughty individual. It takes us uh, humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God and trusting him to lift us up. And if we'll walk humbly with God, God will walk with us. So here David has the Spirit of God with him from that day forward, but at the same time, the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, and this evil or this afflicting spirit begins to trouble him. And the servants of Saul, they understand what is going on. Saul doesn't understand it, but they do. They're watching. And you know, a lot of times when we do wrong, we don't understand the affliction that comes against us, but those around us may understand it better than we do. Uh, oftentimes, we're blinded to what we have done, and the, especially the consequences of uh, what we've done and why this has come into our lives. And so a lot of times, we need faithful friends that can point out to us uh, what it is that we have done. That's why the Bible says to Solomon, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of the enemy, they are deceitful. You know, there are some people that will tell you what it is that you want to hear instead of what you need to hear. And the Bible says those are enemies and their kisses are deceitful. Some of our leaders, whether in Congress or in the White House, uh, uh, there are many of them that have only wanted yes men. A lot of people in the corporate structure, a lot of people in power, uh, positions of authority, they only want individuals that will tell them what they want to hear. 
The problem, though, with that is a lot of time what they want to hear is not what is reality and what they need to hear. And so if you don't have somebody among your company that will be honest with you and tell you exactly what you need to hear, you can find yourself very quickly in a very disastrous situation. Well, these servants of Saul, these are faithful individuals. Notice again, when they see what's going on, they come to Saul and they say, Behold now, an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. They see what's happening. They also have a solution for it. Notice what they say. Let our Lord now command thy servants. We're not going to take this upon ourselves. We want you, king, to command us. And we're going to seek out a man, once you command us, who is a cunning player on a harp. And it shall come to pass when the evil spirit from God is upon thee that he shall play with his hand and thou shalt be well. So the servants, number one, they see the problem. Number two, they know the solution. But they also recognize they don't have the authority to seek it out. So they ask the king, just let your servants do this and we'll seek out a man. And when he comes in, he's going to play. And when he plays this music, you'll be soothed, in other words. So he likes the idea. He says, provide me now a man that can play well and bring him to me. So one man speaks up. He answered one of the servants saying, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite that is cunning and playing and a mighty valiant, uh, excuse me, a mighty valiant man, a man of war, and prudent in matters, and a comely person, and the Lord is with him. There's a lot we could go into just in the description of David here. This morning we want to really focus just on one aspect, maybe, maybe two, but mainly the first one. Notice what it says, that he is cunning and playing. In our language today, we generally use the word cunning in a negative sense. Somebody who's crafty. But in the Bible, almost always the word cunning is painted in a positive way. In fact, I can think right now of only one example where it's given in a negative light. So oftentimes, we've got to be careful about our language and applying our definitions of today on the scriptures. Because a lot of times, the way we use words today are not the way that the translators who translated the King James Bible uh, understood them in their day. That's why I highly encourage folks to have an 1828 uh, Webster's Dictionary. If you don't have one on your shelf, if you've got a Bible app, most of the time you can uh, download that into the app. And one great thing about Noah's, uh, Noah Webster's 1828, the language, the definitions there was much more like they were in 1611 than obviously today. In fact, you can take a Webster's Dictionary of today versus Noah Webster's 1828 and you'll be surprised at the great difference in the defining of words. In fact, what I love about Webster's is many times when he is defining a word, he'll quote a scripture to define it. He will use the, the Bible to uh, define his words. I, I respect him for that. Well, anyway, here this word cunning just means an expert, one who is skilled. We find the Apostle Paul uses the word negatively in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 when he talks about individuals who with cunning craftiness lie in wait to deceive. Well, they're skillful. That means they're skillful in their craftiness. And what's their craftiness? Their ability to deceive. The word cunning there itself just simply means they're very skillful in what they do. You have to go on and look at the activity to see that the activity was negative. Uh, their skill was in negative things and wicked things instead of godly things. But most of the time in the scriptures, once again, that word simply means skilled. One who understands, one who uh, has been well-trained, well-taught. So you could say uh, a man of God who knows how to handle the scriptures, that he's cunning in the scriptures, and that would not be a negative reflection on that man. It just simply means he is skillful in the word. 
which the Bible tells us that's exactly what we're supposed to be striving is so that you and I would learn more and more. That's what Paul tells the Hebrews, that we would be skillful in the word of righteousness. So the very first thing that this man, and I don't know how this man knows David. The Bible doesn't say. If you remember, David has just been introduced to us in this chapter. He's a young boy. Now, we don't know how much time has transpired between uh, David being anointed and this experience here. It could be just the same day. It could be a matter of days or weeks or months. We don't really have any idea about that. But what we do know is this man knows some things about David. David has walked in a way that has caught at least this one man's attention. It's caught his notice. And so as Saul says, yes, you find me a man. You find a cunning player. This is what this man responds with. He says, I know an individual. I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. He's cunning and playing. That means he's an expert in playing. He's skillful in playing. But he goes on. He doesn't, that's all that they needed. That's what the, they said before. Let us find a cunning player on a harp. Well, this man doesn't stop with that. He could have just said, well, we know an individual. His name is David. He's the son of Jesse. And he's cunning and playing. But he doesn't stop with his description of David there. He goes on to say that not only is he cunning and playing, he's a mighty, valiant man. Well, actually, he's still a stripling. <laughs> He's still not even a grown man yet, but according to this man, he is a mighty, valiant man. He says he is a man of war, but he's also prudent in matters. What does that word prudent mean? It means he's careful. Not in the sense of being scared, not in the sense of being afraid. It means careful in the sense of he was uh, cautious. He didn't just rush into things. He's an individual that thinks through before he speaks and before he does. And you'll find through the life of David his great wisdom. And it's no wonder why Solomon would be as wise as he was. He came from a wise father. We find many times that in David's experience, especially as he's on the run, later when Saul begins to despise him and will hate him, David has to be very uh, prudent in matters. He's prudent in what he says, but also in what he does. I think about when he comes to Gath, when he's there in the city of the Philistines, in the city of Goliath. And he thinks he will find a welcome there. Well, immediately they're suspicious of him. David, he sees that. He's prudent. You know what he does? He pretends as though he's insane. Now, he's deceptive. But the point at the moment is that he could quickly discern the situation and knew how to respond and react in the moment. Uh, Other times, he could see himself in great trouble, and he was able to steer around it. And that is uh, what you and I certainly need is wisdom so that you and I can see the trouble ahead. That's what Proverbs tells us, that a prudent man, he sees the trouble and he goes around it. Uh, A lot of trouble would be avoided if you and I were simply prudent in matters. If we sought experience and wisdom from God, and then we would exercise that as we come to situations that we would think before we speak, that we would look at matters, we would also try to uh, evaluate what the outcome might be, and most of the time just simply step around it and go on about our business. I have to confess there's many times that I don't stop and think and I just charge right into a situation. And then when I look back, I think, well, if I'd have just stepped around that, I would have avoided a whole lot of trouble for myself and also uh, for those that also were in the experience. So here it says he was prudent in matters. He's a comely person. That means he was desirable to look at. And then the last one, and the Lord is with him. Now, they've just told Saul... The Lord has sent an evil spirit, and it's troubling you. 
But here's David, and the Lord is with him. You would think that Saul would not like that. He'd say, well, I don't want anything to do with that man. But that's not what Saul does. Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David thy son, which is with the sheep. And Jesse took an ass laden with bread and a bottle of wine and a kid and sent them by David his son unto Saul. Notice it says, David came to Saul and stood before him, and he, that means Saul, loved him greatly. This is going to change drastically over the course of the next few years, of course, because this man that right now Saul loves greatly, he will just as intensely hate in just a few short years. And it's amazing how an individual can be loved by somebody, and then circumstances change, And this person who dearly loved you and that you dearly love can become one of your greatest enemies. And that's why David would write in some of those psalms. He says, yea, mine own familiar friend. He says, who I ate bread with, somebody that I had communion with, hath lifted his heel against me. David understood what it was to be betrayed. He knew what it was to have a treacherous individual who once loved him turn on him. But David, being prudent in matters, could uh, sense the change in Saul. He saw it as it was transpiring, and he was not ignorant of what was going on. And because of his great wisdom in matters, uh, there were times he was able to escape out of Saul's hand because he was able to see that Saul's heart was no longer with him. But notice, first of all, it says this, of this servant that this man, David, this young man, David, he's a cunning player on a harp. And so he's brought, and we find that he comes and he plays the harp, And Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. So David, as a young individual, he's already skillful with the harp. But notice what music is able to do. Now, music was not able to bring the spirit of God back to Saul as it had been prior to Saul abandoning the Lord. But it was able, when that spirit from God would afflict him in the most intense times, music was able to soothe his mind. God has used music throughout history uh, for worship. We find that music has been used all the way back. The first account we find is Exodus chapter 15. After the children of Israel had watched, after they had gone through the Red Sea and saw uh, Pharaoh's army swallowed up, that says, then sang them the song of Moses... And they began to sing how the horse and the rider was uh, drowned in the sea. And how God was a man of war. And God triumphed gloriously. And they began to sing of that experience there on the banks of the Red Sea. As they stood there on the shore and they watched how the power of God uh, unfolded there and delivered them. Uh, Moses began to lead them in song. And there the children of Israel, they worshiped the Lord. But we also find that singing can do the opposite. Uh, There is singing that can be done that is honorable to God, but there's also singing that can be done that obviously is nothing more than carnal. I find in the book of Exodus chapter 32, I believe it is, that uh, Moses is on the mountain of God there on Mount Sinai receiving the law. And we find that the children of Israel, they come to Aaron and they say, we wish not or we don't know what's happened to this Moses. He's been gone for 40 days, you know, and we don't know what's happened to him. We assume he's just gone. He's not coming back. And so Aaron comes up with the idea, bring me all of your gold. And they build a fire. And they take the gold and they make a golden calf. There's a reason it was a golden calf. They learned some things down in Egypt. And so here they make this golden calf. 
And they all strip off their clothes and they began to dance and sing around the cast. And this be the God that delivered us out of Egypt. Joshua heard that up halfway up the mountain. See, Joshua went partway up with Moses. Moses went to the top of the mountain and God sees what's going on there. And he tells Moses, you get down there. And as he meets Joshua on the way down, Joshua says, I hear the noise of war in the camp. He says, no, it's not the noise of war. He says, what it is, it's really the uh, singing of rebellion. It's singing that's wicked. Moses could detect through the sound that it was wickedness going on there. And some of the greatest times of wickedness of mankind, you'll find that music accompanied those moments. Even today when people want to do wicked things, a lot of times there is music that goes along with that. There is certain kind of music that I simply will not listen to and nor will I allow it in my home. Because I know that the melody of it and the harmony of it, all it does is stir the carnal flesh. All it does is stir up the mind and the flesh to wickedness, not to godly things. That's why I'm even particular about what I'll sing in the house of God. Because there are some songs that I don't believe are appropriate for worship. uh, That some men have, I think, just simply ignorantly uh, placed in our hymnals. Uh, I believe that we need to be careful not only about what it is we sing, but also the melodies that we use, that it stirs up the inner man, meaning the godly individual within us. We need to be careful not to stir up the carnal nature of man, uh, because once it's stirred up, it's hard to get that to settle back down. And so music has been used throughout history, both in godly ways, but also in very ungodly ways. I mean, we've all seen movies, I'm sure, of uh, some ancient cultures where they would get together with their ungodly form of worship, and there would always be this drumbeat of music that accompanies that. And as you read throughout the scriptures and you find pagan worship, there was always pagan music that went along with that. It stirred up the emotions of these people, and of course they were willing to just blindly go along with some very ungodly things. So music is a very powerful tool. Satan knows that. And so Satan will use it. There's a reason back in the 50s that some of the older generation was concerned about a certain music group that came out of England uh, and some of the things that it brought with it and then where music went further from that. There was a re- Some of our forebears, they could foresee what was going to come out of what we call rock and roll music and uh, some of the great damage that it would do in our culture. And they were right. It succeeded. Uh, Because from there, you see, many other wicked acts would begin to take place uh, through the influence of those melodies, but also the words that were contained therein. There's a lot of songs that we could go to. I think of one, you think, well, it's a very, uh, you would think it's a song that really wouldn't uh, impact man in a negative way. Frank Sinatra sang it, and I I have to confess, I think Frank Sinatra had a beautiful voice. Uh, he, He could sing well, but he had a song... He said, I did it my way. Some of you probably remember that song. I don't have the lyrics with me here today, but the whole song was, uh, I'm not a bit ashamed. I have hardly any regrets. Why? Because everything I did, I did it my way. (laughs) He doesn't praise about how he did things God's way. Uh, He did it his own way. And if you look at the life of Frank Sinatra, you'll find out that's exactly what he did. He did things his own way, and it was not a very godly life. There's a lot of other uh, musicians we could talk about, a lot of other songs that we could bring forward. The point is simply this, that song is, uh, is very powerful. It can be used for great good, or it can be used for great destruction. 
some of the moments that I am the most stirred up, and I mean stirred in a godly way, is when I'm in a full congregation of people that are all singing in unison together songs like Sweet Rivers of Redeeming Love, songs like How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds, songs that speak about the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, songs of redemption, songs of the sovereignty of God, songs that just encapsulate the doctrine of the Word of God. When I hear those, I get stirred up in the inner man, and there are times that I have sat in a song service, and I could not sing. My voice wouldn't come because the power of the moment caused me to weep. The Spirit of God was so present in my own experience, but also clearly in the whole house. And I've also seen when uh, a song service like that was going on and all of a sudden one of these songs that I don't care anything about that does nothing for me is called out. And it's amazing how it's like a vacuum cleaner just sucks the Spirit of God right outside of the place. I've seen it happen all too many times and I get so discouraged because there in a moment here we were all in the Spirit of God in unison and there you could feel the power of God in the place. And in a moment it was clear the Lord didn't like that next song either because he left. Uh, the reason I don't like some of it is it's clear to me the Lord doesn't like them. Okay, it's not, well, I've got my own opinions too, but I believe I'm in unison with the Lord. Of course I think that, or I wouldn't think like I think. Anyway, here's, music is just simply a powerful tool. We see this in Saul. Saul is troubled. He's afflicted, and justly so. He's done wrong, and so God does not just say, well, you know what, I've rejected Saul. I'm just going to ignore Saul, leave Saul alone. No, God is going to afflict him. Now, some might say, well, if God had just left him alone, maybe he wouldn't have done some of the things that he did to David. That's true. We, God could have just moved on from Saul, not sent this evil spirit, but in the vacuum of God's presence, I promise you, Satan will always fill the void. That's just the way it's going to happen. And so in the absence of the presence of God, what happens here? This evil spirit, Satan comes in. Satan basically comes and takes over Saul's life. Now, through this, though, I believe through the providence of God, David is going to learn many valuable lessons that are going to help him when he is going to be king over Israel. And so I believe that's the reason that God permitted it in the first place, is that he knew that the training that David had up to this point was good training, but it wasn't sufficient for what he would need to be king over a united Israel. He's already a great man. Notice again what this servant says. He's cunning and playing. He's a mighty valiant man, a man of war, prudent in matters and comely, uh, and he also has the Lord with him. I don't know how the man knew all of that, but it's clear that David was a mighty valiant man. He had proved himself a man already. He's out there tending to his father's sheep. Say, well, that's no big deal. He's just out there with his sheep. Well, if you knew where David lived, there in the valleys of Bethlehem, they were very near the border of the Philistines. And Philistine marauders, robbers, would come over from time to time and just take sheep as they wanted. It wouldn't be a whole army. But I find in the Psalms where David says that uh, God made his feet like hind's feet so that he was able to go over the wall. And he said he went through a troop. I believe he's talking about his early experience that here he is all by himself attending to his father's sheep. And there would be troops coming. I don't mean massive armies. But there would be uh, robbers that would come against his father's sheep. And he would defend them. I do know that in the next chapter when he comes before Saul. And Saul doesn't think that he has any business going before Goliath. Then he says, well, listen here. I was out tending to my father's sheep, and a lion came, and a bear came. 
He says, and I went out after them. I didn't just stay there in the safety of my father's home. He says, no, I chased the lion and I chased the bear. And I got the lamb back. But he didn't stop at that. He says, I took the lion by his beard. I smote him. And he smote the bear as well. He wasn't, uh, 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 he was not content with just simply uh, recovering the sheep. He wanted to destroy the enemy so that he couldn't come back again. That tells me he was a mighty, valiant man. Even though he's, uh, in many's view, many persons' view, a boy. But he had proved himself a man as he's out there protecting his father's sheep. He's prudent in matters. He's comely person. That means he was beautiful. But again, it says, and the Lord is with him. But he's a cunning player. So imagine David out here on the hills of Bethlehem. Last week, we tried to look at that a little bit briefly. But uh, think about David out there day and night, mostly by himself. I believe that's where David wrote psalms like Psalm 19 and Psalm 8 that talk about the glory of God as he looked into the heavens at night. I think he was a boy out there on those hills all alone looking into the stars. And instead of being uh, looking for Orion or I don't even remember the names of the rest of them. Anyway, uh, uh, he he was seeing the glory of God. He says, the heavens declare your handiwork. He said there was no place, no line where their voice was not heard. He says, wherever you would go in creation, he says, you're going to hear the voice of God in the creation. I believe while he was out there in the lonely hours all by himself, he took his heart. And that's where he became a cunning player. He was a young man with a lot of time on his hands. And so he used that time in contemplating on the greatness of God and learning how to play music that would praise the Lord. In 2 Samuel 23, verse 5, when it says, Now these be the last words of David. In the final uh, phrase of that first verse, it says he's the sweet psalmist of Israel. What's a psalmist? A psalmist is somebody that not only writes words to sing, but also writes the music to go with them. And so when we read the psalms, Asaph and David and others who wrote these psalms, they didn't just write the words They wrote the music that were to attend these words. And so David is a sweet psalmist. When it says sweet there, it means that the words and the music that he wrote were words that would encourage the child of God. They would be words of instruction. In fact, even in the dark hours of David's life, when he would write about, for instance, his experience with Bathsheba, there in Psalm 51, when he would record the great affliction that he had brought to himself and the judgment of God that was upon him, we can learn from that what it is to be a repentant individual. And that's certainly something you and I need to know. I love to read about uh, David saying that God is his rock and his fortress, his high tower. Those are wonderful things to read about. But it's just as important for us to read Psalm 51 and to know that if we're not careful, God would take from us the joy of his salvation. But at the same time, that if we will confess what we are and beg God to create in us a clean heart, he'll restore to us the joy of his salvation. We need to know those things. And so David is the sweet psalmist of Israel because he wrote songs and he wrote words to songs that would encourage and instruct and edify the people of God. Even in the times of his affliction, he would still praise the Lord. In the dark hours of the cave, we looked at Psalm 59 and uh, Psalm 142, I believe it is, where even in those moments, in one of the darkest moments of his life, what does David do? He still says, I want the glory of God to be exalted above the heavens. Here, when my life is in danger, 
when I think that they could take my life at any moment, I still want God's glory to be exalted above all things. Would you be thinking that? Do you think if uh, an enemy was coming after your life, do you think that you would stop and say, Lord, you know what I want right now? Above everything else, I want your glory exalted above the heavens. I don't know that I could say that. I would probably say, Lord, here's what I want right now. I need a reprieve from this enemy, and I would love for you to come down upon them with hailstones from heaven and destroy them. That's probably what I would be praying. David, though, in the midst of uh, his trouble and his calamity, he's praising God and saying, I want you glorified. And thus the Lord delivered him. See, David put God first. And because of that, the Lord greatly honored him. So this servant of Saul, he knew enough about David to say he's cunning and playing. He knows music. He knows how to play in such a way, King Saul, that I believe you'll be soothed. And so David is sent for, and Jesse, he responds. He sends David with an ass laden with bread, a bottle of wine, and also a kid. And now remember, Jesse's not a rich man, but he's given the best that he has to send to the king. We can make a point about that. Jesse, being a poor man, still sent the best to the king. And you and I, we ought to present our best to the king. We ought to give our very best that we have. Say, well, I don't have much that's very good. Will you give your best? I think about the woman that was a sinner that came to Jesus in Simon uh, the Pharisee's house. And as soon as she comes in the door, number one, it's amazing that she would come there in the presence of a Pharisee. But this woman loved Jesus so much and needed redemption from Jesus so greatly that she didn't care that there was a Pharisee of the law there in that house that day. She still comes to where Jesus was. And Jesus uh, understands everything about her. The Bible says she was a great sinner. Jesus knew that. He knew everything about her. She was a very ungodly woman. But uh, uh, we find that that day, uh, her sin struck her in a way that it apparently never had before. And this woman is turning from that and repenting and coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking uh, redemption, seeking forgiveness, uh, seeking his helping and uh, uh, forgiving hand. You know what the Lord Jesus does for her? Well, here she comes in and takes the perfume, the, the ointment that I guarantee is she had used in prior times to, to seduce men to make her living. But that's all she had. It was the best that she had. And she brings it to Jesus and she anoints him and she weeps and she washes her, his feet with her tears. You know what Simon says in his heart? If he were a prophet, he would know this woman is a sinner. He wouldn't let her touch him. And Jesus knew. So Jesus turns it on Simon. He says, Simon, and he presents two individuals, two people with debts, one with a great debt, one with a small debt. He says, both were forgiven their debt. Who do you think would love the creditor more. He says, I suppose the one that was forgiven much. Jesus says, thou hast well said. He says, this woman, since I've come in, you know, all her attention has been at my feet. I came in, you didn't even give me water for my feet. But she's washed them with her tears, dried them with her hair. And all you can focus on is how she's a sinner. But you know what the Lord told her? He says, you go thy way, thy sins be forgiven thee. She brought the best that she had. Here, Jesse, he's a poor man, but he's going to send to the king the very best that he has. And you and I, when we come to the house of God, we ought to bring the very best that we have. We shouldn't come dragging in because we stayed up way too late the night before. We ought to be alert. We ought to be ready to praise his name. 
We should rise early on the Lord's day and give thanks for the day, give thanks that we have the ability to come to the house of worship. There's people in this world right now that would love to have uh, the freedom that you and I possess right now uh, to simply get up on a Sunday morning and get ourselves clothed and to drive a few miles in a comfortable car to come to the house of God and to worship Him. There are people this world over, uh, number one, that would just like to have the financial means to be able to do that, and some who are being persecuted are not allowed to do that freely. And here you and I, sometimes we just take for granted and say, well, it'll always be there. Well, it may not always be here. And so we ought to uh, oblige ourselves while we can. I know I've used this multiple times, but there were many times that I would go see Sister Mildred Carlton and she would lament the fact that she was not able to come to the house of God. But you know what she was able to do? She was able to reach back into her mind and her heart and remember times that she had been here in the Lord's house and how God had blessed her in those experiences. And so in the moments when she absolutely could not be here, you know what God did? God blessed her memory with the times that she had been here. For some folks, they're going to get to the point in their life where they're not going to be able to come. And in that day, they're not going to have the memories to uh, reach back and grab because they weren't here enough to store it up. David says, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So here he is, he's a cunning player. And his playing was able to soothe the mind of Saul. Saul loved him, it says. Notice again, loved him greatly. So much so that he gives him more responsibility. He's there just simply to play a heart. But you know what Saul does? He says, you're going to be my armor bearer. Say, oh, so he gets to carry the sword of Saul? No, an armor bearer was more than that. An armor bearer carried the implements of warfare that the king or some important person in battle could not carry. Maybe a king at that moment might have a bow and arrow, so at that moment the armor bearer would be carrying the sword and the shield. Whatever uh, uh, weapons the king could not bear at any given moment David it was his responsibility to bear them. now apparently David has not exercised himself in warfare yet to do it but we find that David uh, King Saul has enough confidence in David he gives him the responsibility another responsibility of armor bearer doesn't seem all that good but it was still one of the responsibilities let's say a king shot somebody with an arrow and as they come upon that enemy he's not quite dead it was the responsibility of the armor bearer to make sure the enemy of the king was slain and could do no damage to the king. That means the king trusted that individual greatly. And so here King David, excuse me, King Saul, uh, he loves David greatly and he becomes his armor bearer. How is it that David is lifted up so quickly? Well, number one, he plays music in such a way that it soothes the mind of Saul. But more importantly than him being a cunning player, and David certainly was that. And we could go to many psalms and show where David wrote beautiful words, words that you and I uh, sing in our hymnal today. Uh, words that encourage us. I mean, how many times in the dark hours of the night uh, when we can't sleep or maybe our soul is afflicted, where do we often turn to in the scriptures to find encouragement? Me, I often turn to the psalms. <laughs> It's the Psalms that I turn to. There's times that I'm going to turn to Psalm 61 that says that when I'm overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Uh, there's going to be times that I'm going to turn to Psalm 42 where it says, As thirst the heart of the deer for the water brook, so penneth my soul after thee, O God. Uh, or I might turn to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. There's so many places in the Psalms for the child of God to turn to in times of great praise and in times of great trouble. And a lot of these were penned by this man through the Spirit of God. This man was greatly gifted. 
I mean, again, read what it says about him. He's cunning and playing. He used his time there in the valley of Bethlehem. He wasn't just out there horsing around. <laughs> he was out there learning skills that would be beneficial to him in warfare and beneficial for him as he would lead the nation of Israel. He wasn't a child. I mean, he, I'm sure there were moments that he certainly wasted away some time. Child's, children will be children. But the, obviously... David used a lot of his time out there in good pursuits. He was cunning and playing, a mighty valiant man, a man of war, and prudent in matters, and a comely person. You know why all that worked to his benefit? Because the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. We're going to find in 1 Samuel 18 that David or Saul will be afraid of David. You know why? Because he knew the Lord was with him. That's a good reason to be afraid of an individual. If you know the Lord's not with you, but the Lord is with him, you better leave that individual alone. Uh, there's people in the scriptures that found that out the hard way. I think for a moment in Acts chapter 16, when the apostle Paul and Silas, they're thrown into prison. Why were they thrown into prison? Because there was a woman of divination, I mean a woman of evil spirits, a woman that prophesied and got gains for the people there in uh, Philippi. Uh, she comes to the Apostle Paul and she is converted. And this woman now is worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, the people who were over her, making money off her, they get very upset about this. And so, so Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. The Lord is with them, though. You know what happens? They sing at midnight. Here in the dark hours of the night, instead of saying, you know, Lord, why is it that you've allowed us to be here? You know, it's easy to sing when everything's going well. When you're on the banks of the Red Sea and you see your uh, enemy drown there in the Red Sea, it's easy to sing. The horse and his rider had they thrown into the sea. The Lord had triumphed gloriously. It's easy to sing that uh, when things are going well. But what about the children of Israel in Psalm 137 when the Babylonians said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. What they say? They hung their harps in the willows and they said, How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Saul, uh, Paul did and so did Silas. Paul and Silas, they were in a strange land. They were in a prison for nothing more than helping a woman uh, who was worshiping falsely. And they taught her the good and right way. The Lord blessed her through that. And instead of complaining about where they were, and this jailer who roughly threw them in, now thankfully God dealt mercifully to him. Because as he's ready to take his own life, what does Paul say? He says, you stay yourself. Do yourself no harm. So, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They say to him, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with your house. You'll be saved. And that man, he believed that night. And he and his household, they were baptized. They were given gospel salvation that night. They understood that their redemption in Christ was complete. Uh, that was the best thing that that jailer could know was that Jesus was sovereign. And Jesus had taken care of his sins. And not only did he know that, but his wife and his children, they were blessed to experience that knowledge as well. Oh, because these men were willing to sing praises in the middle of the night and God sent an earthquake and there delivered them out of the hand of their enemies. And over and over throughout the scriptures we find where people of God who were willing to live for the Lord and uh, they were also willing to die for the Lord if need be. God stood up for them because they stood up for God. I think about the three Hebrew children. The Lord was with them, was he not? And so, I mean, he was literally with them. As they were thrown into the fiery furnace there in Daniel chapter, uh, chapter 3. What happens? The Lord Jesus Christ comes on the scene. 
the second in the Trinity, the Bible, the one who the Bible says is faithful and true, the warrior of God. Uh, he comes there to where they are. As they're in the fire, he comes to the fire with them. And as they're there, uh, totally protected and enshrouded by the sovereign power of God. I mean, God could have just sent his power there and that would have been enough. But God sent his son, which would be a preview of him sending his son thousands of years later in bodily form. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar looked into that uh, furnace? He says, didn't we throw three men in there? He says, lo, I see four. And the fourth is like the Son of God. How do you know that? Well, the Lord told him that's how he knew that. But that man was amazed as he looked into that furnace and saw the Lord was with them. We mentioned last week Joseph. It says at least twice in his life that the Lord was with him. Genesis 39, verse 2. The Lord was with him. So what happens? He was elevated in Potiphar's house. Later in that same chapter, it says the Lord was with him. So what happens? The keeper of the prison put everything to his hands. said, look not on anything that he did. In other words, he fully trusted Joseph to do what uh, he was supposed to do. Why? Because the Lord was with Joseph. Did the prison keeper understand all the details of that? No, he just knew this was a trustworthy man. He could see the outward evidence that the Lord was inside this man. The Lord was with this man. Now, whether he recognized the godliness of that or not, I don't know. But he did understand this. This was a man of integrity, a man that was trustworthy. And so he put things into his hands that were his responsibility. But he trusted Joseph enough to take care of it. We find in the book of Matthew that Jesus' name would be called Emmanuel. My favorite name for the Lord Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, which being interpreted means God with us. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord is with David. Saul would be afraid of David because he knew the Lord was with him. But you know what? Thank God his name is Emmanuel. He's also God with us. Matthew 28, the very last thing that the Lord Jesus Christ will tell his disciples before he ascends out of this world. He says, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The last thing that Jesus wanted the disciples and you and me to know is that he is with us. Say, well, I can't see him. I can't either, but I can certainly feel him. There's been many times in my life there was no doubt the Lord was with me. Uh, the Lord protected me. The Lord preserved me. The Lord helped me. The Lord provided for me. Uh, the Lord uh, lifted me out of danger, lifted me out of despair. There's been many times no doubt that the Lord manifestly showed himself to be with me. But I'm also thankful Hebrews says, even when I don't know it, that I'm to be content. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So again, this man, David is greatly respected, at least by this one servant of Saul. Why? Because the Lord is with him. That's going to make all the difference of David's life. And it'll make all the difference in your life. But for the Lord to be with David, and the Lord to be with you and I, it requires for you and I to be willing to walk after the statutes and the commandments and the ways of the Lord. Now the Lord, uh, he'll be with us no matter what in the sense that the salvation of God, he'll preserve our eternal life. He will keep us as far as our eternal life is concerned, but we can live in such a way that the Lord will withdraw himself from, himself from us in the sense of his abiding presence, his protecting presence, his loving presence, in the sense of his power and his glory, his majesty, the joy 
the things that really should matter most to us. I realize that not a one of us that the Lord loves can ever be lost. And thank God that's the truth. But you know, we can live in a way like Paul would tell the church at Corinth. When that man who was so ungodly in 1 Corinthians 5 that Paul records there, he says, you turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You know what? Paul has just said, right now, this man is totally useless in the kingdom of God, so you turn him over to Satan's kingdom. Let Satan have his way with him for a while, and maybe he will come back. Maybe he won't. He ended up coming back, thank God. But that man, God, Paul says, here's what you do with him. He doesn't want to live according to the precepts of the kingdom of God. If he wants to live after the way of Satan and Satan's kingdom, then put him out there with Satan's kingdom. Let him live out there for a while. Let him lose the protection and the refuge of the house of God. Let him lose the hedging protection of the hand of God. Let him lose all of that for a while and let him see uh, what it is to live out there in Caesar's world, in Satan's world for a while and find out how much uh, he reveres and loves the, uh, the Lord's kingdom and the Lord's people and the Lord's Lord's ways. So it's important for you and I to be careful how we walk, how we live, how we think, because all those things affect whether the Lord will be with us in the way that he was with David, in a way of protection, in a way of teaching him, in a way of counseling him, a way of guiding him, a way of preparing him. I want to live in such a way that the Lord is with me to preserve me, to protect me, to guide me, to lead me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. To lead me where he wants me to go instead of me saying, Lord, this is what I'm going to do and I hope you'll show up when I get there. See, that's where David, most of the time in his life, that's what he did. He trusted the Lord to lead him. Now, occasionally he went on by himself and said, Lord, I'm here and I hope you show up. And it got him in trouble. Abraham faced that. Many faced that where they will go before the Lord will go and, and then just hope he shows up. Don't do that. Wait for the Lord to teach you, to guide you. And to prepare you. And in the meantime, do like David did. Don't waste your time. The Bible says we're to redeem the time. For the day of the Lord is at hand. We're to redeem the time while the days are evil. How do I redeem the time? How can I get time back? I can't get time back. But what I can do is make the most of the time that I have. I can use it for the glory of God. And the benefit of God's people. And God is pleased with that. So I'm to redeem the time. I'm to make use of the time. I'm to use it wisely. That means I ought to be committing to memory God's word. Again, David said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. What would happen in our nation today if every Bible was rounded up and taken from us? Do you have enough verses committing to, to memory? And if we all gathered together in some secret place that we all could start at Genesis 1-1 and with the help of one another, we could rewrite the word of God, do you think we could do it? I don't know if we could or not. I know there's a lot of them I could contribute. Now, forget the periods and the semicolons and all that, but uh, I'm not a good grammarian. But I, I, could get a, I could get a sum of them. How much could you contribute to the rewriting of God's word if it was taken away? Now, here's the good thing about it. God says that he will preserve it from this generation forever. But I read in history, or especially those who were called the Waldensians, they didn't have Bibles. And that day and time, there was one in the Catholic Church that was literally chained to the pulpit. You know who could read it? The priests, not the people. There would be 
somehow the Waldensians, some of them got a hold of a Bible, a New Testament. They would pass it from house to house. And it came so that the children of those houses literally could quote entire books of the New Testament from start to finish. And not just a chapter, but they learned to commit entire books of the New Testament to memory. Why? Because they had to pass that on to somebody else. I don't know, I probably own 30 Bibles. And so to me, I think, well, if that one, something happens to it, and I've got some that are falling apart, I'll just move on to the next one. I'll just turn to where it is. And nowadays, of course, with uh, uh, Bible programs and iPads and iPhones, you don't even hardly need a concordance anymore. You can just type it in. If you can't do that, you can Google a verse. And so it's getting easier and easier and easier to access the Word of God. And sadly, many of God's people are accessing it less and less and less. David, he loved the Word of God. Read Psalm 19. You know what he says about the Word of God in Psalm 19? He says it's sweeter than the honeycomb. He thought it was better than fine gold, yea, much fine gold. He says it's clean, it's pure, it rejoices the heart. So this man loved the word of God, he read the word of God, and he lived the word of God, and so the Lord was with him. And because the Lord was with him, Saul loved him, and here he becomes the armor bearer of God. Now, there's going to be some problems, obviously, that come. But it's important to remember that key phrase as we go forward in studying the life of David. The Lord is with him. And the Lord is going to bless him through so many different and varied experiences. Because David is a man who walks with the Lord. And so the Lord gladly walked with him. Again, David says, I have set the Lord at my right hand. Therefore, I shall not be moved. Live in such a way that you would be at the right hand of God and no man could shake you out of that place. That no matter what devil or what man would come against you, you would have the protecting hand of God always about you. Why? Because God is right there at your right hand. What does that mean? It means David was right with the Lord. He was close to the Lord. And that's the point. Walking in such a way, living in such a way that we know that the way we're living, God is just right there. And so in the moment we need something, who are we going to immediately turn to? The one who's right there. For some, it may be your wife or your child or your grandchild or a friend. And that shouldn't be the first person that you go to. They certainly ought to be people that you go to if they're faithful individuals. But you ought to be so close to the Lord that when something arises in your life, the first place you go to is immediately to the Lord because he's right there. And he is. He's right there in you. He's Christ in us, the hope of glory. You know, I thank God for the closeness that I have with my wife. But you know what? I have Christ even closer. He's in me. He's Christ in me, the hope of glory. And I need to live in such a way that when something comes up in my life, I know he's right there. And I go right to him because he can provide help that my wife can't, my children can't, my friends can't, the church can't. There's things he can do that no one else can do. And so I must, if I want his help, live in such a way that he is pleased to be right there with me and thus protect me from many of the dangers and harms that would come and befall us in this world. May God bless you today as our prayer.